The only contact point between the body and the ground is the skin in the bottom of the feet. So that does something really powerful to the brain, to the nervous system, to the fascial system, to the coordination, to evolution, to, I mean, just so much. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online courses, many of them accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, with up to a massive 30% savings for members of Australian Fitness Network. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Phylex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar at phylex.com.au. Functional podiatrist and human movement specialist Dr. Emily Splickle has spent her career studying barefoot science and foot-to-core integration. Here she talks to the fitness industry podcast Oliver Kitchingman about from-the-ground-up training, barefoot feedback and two-point discrimination, the powerful link between motion and emotion, and the simple balance hack of getting clients to push their fingertips together. Emily, welcome to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be online. Emily, can you just start off by giving us a little bit of information about your background? Sure. So I am a functional podiatrist, human movement specialist from New York. I'm also the founder of EBFA Global, which is a education company for health and movement specialists. We have different certifications through EBFA. Most common one is barefoot training specialist. All of the education through EBFA is focused on feet, barefoot science, foot to core, and from the ground up movement. And then finally, I am the inventor and founder of Naboso, which is a proprioceptive insole and mat company. Okay. So there's a lot of information there. There's a lot of things you've touched on there, which I guess we'll now kind of go delve into a bit deeper. But mind-body awareness is quite a complex research shows that we also have an emotional side to body awareness. And you, you talk about interoception. I must confess, it's not a term I'm very familiar with. So first of all, what do you mean by the emotional side to body awareness? Yeah, so there is a very powerful link between motion and emotion. I would say the most common way that people think of this is like endorphins, right? So runner's high, movement is positively affecting someone's emotional state. It's also a really powerful way to address anxiety or depression. I think a lot of people are familiar with that. But to go in even further, how you had mentioned the word interoception or interoceptors, these are sensory nerves that are found in our fascia, and they are linked to your body's internal state of balance, which is then layered into emotion. Because these receptors are found in your fascia and fascia is stimulated through movement, that's how you could also tie in the influence of emotional states through movement, which is a fascinatingly complex area of movement and mind-body connections. I think it's where the fitness industry is going and needs to go. And that's a topic that I I speak on a lot is interoception and the emotional influence and tie-in with motion. Okay, so, I mean, interoceptors, is, is this a quantifiable kind of measurable thing in the fascia? Yes, yes. So interoceptors are actually a type of a free nerve. 
I don't want to put people to sleep, but <laughs> there's there's two main types of nerves where we think of myelinated nerves, right? If you remember from like science class, the myelin makes the signal through the nerve travel faster, right? So it kind of jumps along the nodes de Ranvier. And then there's free nerves that don't have myelin. Free nerves are just a little bit different type of nerve. Some of the most common free nerves are like pain receptors. A pain receptor is a free nerve, which just means it processes a little bit different. Interoceptors are another type of free nerve. And where you find interoceptors is the fascia, like I said, but also your gut. So like your GI system and your visceral system. When you look at interoception, interoceptors, you can think of it almost like intuition or a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. So when you feel like your gut is telling you something or you feel a little bit of like butterflies or again, intuition, like I had said, that's actually your interoceptors that are speaking to you or communicating with you. Okay, so when there's a lot of talk these days about the gut being the second brain, that's what we're talking about there? So yes, partly. Mm -hmm. The gut being the second brain, one layer of how you could break that down is that the surface area of your GI system, so GI will be the entire gut, right? So the intestines, that entire tract through the esophagus is 100 times larger than the surface area of your skin, external skin, which is just saying we think of skin as like sensory rich, right? Like all the nerves on your skin and your hands and your feet, very powerful, thousands and thousands of nerves, you actually have many more nerves in your internal environment, and that internal environment gut is linked to brain and your state of balance or not balance, safe, not safe, fight or flight versus rest and digest, so kind of that balance. So that's a layer to this, this gut brain. The other layer is the gut flora, so the microbiome, which is a little bit what people think of more, like probiotics and prebiotics and you know, how that influences mental health. There's actually a lot of research that shows if you just balance someone's microbiome, you can actually address a lot of anxiety and depression, like mental health states. So those are actually being built into functional medicine and kind of anti-aging science, biohacking. <laughs> like, I don't know how people want to think of it, but understanding the power of the gut from an emotional perspective, from its connection to the brain, to the mental health, from the microbiome to the interoceptors is super powerful. Okay, so this is quite a new area of focus for the fitness industry, or I mean, is it even an area of focus for the fitness industry yet? I would say superficially, or like the tip of the iceberg, it is, where you could say that this is a fascial concept, because it is, but do people who speak about fascia and a lot of the fascial experts that we think about, Thomas Myers and Robert Schleip and all of them, are they looking at fascia from the interoceptive and the emotional side? Not all of them are, right? And then if we look at yoga and Pilates and meditation and mind-body classes or the breakdown or the category of mind-body within fitness, are they delving this deep into it? Not all of them are. So I think it is just the tip of what people are starting to explore. Most of the research around interoception, if the listeners want to kind of dive down that rabbit hole a little bit more, is actually under psychology. Not body work, not movement, not fascia. There's not a lot that's out there from that category 
it's right now from the psychology and psychotherapy that you will see most of the research. Okay, so Emily, how do you define the autonomic nervous system? So the autonomic nervous system is our unconscious nervous system. It's a branch of the peripheral nervous system. And this is where it is sympathetic, parasympathetic is what most people will go to. Those are two of the three branches. The third branch is actually the enteric, which is what we were just speaking about. Enteric means gut, right? So autonomic nervous system, our unconscious branch of the peripheral nervous system, it controls digestion, heart rates, sweat, things like that. It's a very fast system. It is happening faster than we can consciously process how it is happening. And it's deeply related to stress. That's how I primarily tie it in from a fitness perspective mm-hmm. or a movement perspective. So if we have a client that is stressed out, type A, maybe has a high stress job, they're you know kind of a C-level professional, they're under a lot of pressure, their state of their being is in really survival because they're, they got to keep go, 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 high stress. So when that puts them in the survival state, that would be more the sympathetic And then there's a lot of what happens from the sympathetic system as far as vasoconstriction, right? So they're going to have a little bit higher heart rate. They're going to have restriction in the blood vessels. All of those things contribute to, you know, heart attack risk and things like that from a higher perspective. But it can also then start to trigger chronic stress or the release of cortisol, which is the next layer of stress. So the way that I try to look at the autonomic nervous system from a fitness perspective is how can you better teach your client to better control their state of their autonomic nervous system? Even though it's an unconscious response, we can consciously strengthen the balance and the harmony in the autonomic nervous system, which means you can get them out of the sympathetic state, which is survival, and get them into the opposite, which is parasympathetic, and that is your restoration phase or pattern within the nervous system. To get your client more so into the parasympathetic state, so they're recovering, they're restoring, they're, that's the classic rest-digest, you are helping them to better manage their stress levels. You're helping them to better manage their breathing patterns, the way that they respond to the environment, their injury risk, their performance, their recovery after a workout. So it really ties into fitness and it it behooves any trainer to understand the autonomic nervous system because they have the ability to impact their clients in a really great way. So what would that look like for a trainer on the gym floor with their client? How is this sort of manifesting itself? Yes. So client comes in, I would say the the tone and the energy of the session. If a client is coming to your session at the end of the day, at, at the end of their work day, and they're very stressed out, they are in a sympathetic state, which means they're breathing a certain way. Now you're going to have them work out, but they're breathing very supra diaphragmatic. So they're using kind of the upper aspect of the lobes. They're using all their accessory muscles. They're going to get neck pain because of that, the levator scap, right? So you start to see postural patterns in your clients based off of their state. If they're coming into the session and they're not breathing the right way, well, how are they going to get oxygen to their muscles? You have to 
change their breathing pattern, which means get them out of that sympathetic state. They hold on to tension a lot more if they are in this sympathetic state. So client comes in, you have to use diaphragmatic breathing. Cold showers is another one that can drop them into the parasympathetic state, which means once they're in that controlled parasympathetic state, you, the trainer, through their session and through exercise, is going to bump them into a sympathetic state because exercise is stress, right? So it throws you into a sympathetic state. And then at the end of the session, you want to bring them back down to baseline, which means focus on breathing at the end of the session, kind of tone the energy back down. Think of how like yoga right? Mm -hmm. Kind of yoga gets you in a state, you're doing a different type of breathing patterns. Some yoga classes start with chanting. All of that's intended to get you into a parasympathetic state. Then you start pushing the yoga and the intensity and you're stressing. Now you go into that. And then at the end of a yoga class, you're always going into savasana, right? So it's getting you back into a controlled state. That's done intentionally. Workouts, more workouts between trainers and clients needs to follow that same pattern. Are you seeing many more trainers adopting that sort of practice? Yes. So I travel around and do different education through obviously around the world. And when I speak to them on this topic, I'll actually have some trainers say, oh, yeah, I'll have, you know, XYZ client who comes in and I, I know that they're right, all amped up. And I tell them before we start, you're going to go into that studio And you're going to do diaphragmatic breathing. You're going to lay there. You're going to do some movement prep in the dark. And I recently had a trainer say, is that right? Am I doing that the right way? Is that kind of applying what you're speaking of? And 100% that is. So you see it kind of trickling. I hope that it starts to infiltrate a little bit more because it's unfortunately most societies and clients are just like they're type A And they like the kickboxing classes and they just want like hit and they say, just kick my ass. (laughs) Like, you know, because they're, they're feeding the beast and the state that they're in versus saying like anything calm. Like if you drop me down and I have to be too like, you know, yogi-ish and they're, they're very type A, they want to deviate away from that type of workout, even though that's the best thing that they should be doing. And unfortunately, a lot of reason why people do that is because they don't like, you have to kind of quiet things and be with yourself, right? So it's almost like people who can never be alone because they don't, they aren't comfortable being (laughs) with themselves, right? Which is, we have to get comfortable with silence. We have to get comfortable with calming things down and all your thoughts. You have to be one with your thoughts. That's really scary to people. So most people will deviate towards, no, 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 keep me, keep me amped up here so I don't have to like actually look myself in the mirror. The more that people can do that and the more the trainers can get their clients to do that, they're having a really powerful effect on them. Do you think it's, there's a, you know, if, if people are paying the trainer, they feel like the more I sweat, the harder I go, the more I'm aching afterwards, the more I've achieved, even if it's not necessarily the best thing for them? Oh, 100%. Yes, but I find more and more you're getting trainers, especially independent trainers, who are starting to understand that their impact is greater. So even if I just need to speak to you and we actually get no workout done, that should be worth 
however much you paid me because you needed that at that moment. And if we actually just did the workout and I just like made you sweat and pushed you through it and you didn't really need that at that moment from an emotional kind of personal state, then in my opinion, that would have been the bigger waste of money, right? So the more that you believe that as the trainer and it's easier for you to convince your clients to go down some of these unique newer pathways when you 100% believe it yourself. If you don't believe that philosophy and you don't look at movement in that way, it's going to be harder for you to sell it, right? So when I approach this with my patients or with clients or, or I speak, I mean, I like this concept is like one of my being, like it's just in every cell of my body. So I don't have to sell it to someone because I believe it so powerfully. I think that's the layer that the trainer needs is if you believe it, you don't have to sell it. So any trainer that would be adopting this approach, they need to be sort of looking at the service they deliver as a whole. It's not, I'm just going to drop this in from out of nowhere with clients I've been training into a certain way. It's kind of, you know, becoming part of their, their whole being. Yeah. And it's, it's not for everyone. Like if the trainer is just like, Hey, I like the higher intensity, you know, I'm the glute God. And all I do is like help my clients get like the best glutes. And that's like my, my name and my brand, then stay with it. Cause that's what you believe. And that's part of how you want your brand and your, your kind of approach to be totally fine. It's not for everyone. And that's fine. That's why there's so many different facets to fitness. For those that are interested in this or starting to see like a deeper layer of impact that they could start having with their clients, then that's where this this layered on is really powerful. It could almost be like a subspecialty within fitness. And if you're dealing with certain types of clients, you know, pre-postnatal, I think is huge. Because you're, you know, the new mom, it's a new identity with the body. So there, there's an emotional layer to that. Those that are, there's like cancer specialists, the so people who just really focus on that or chronic neurological conditions, MS, Parkinson's, baby boomers. So there's different subspecialties. You will see that some of those subspecialties have to have a deeper layer of understanding emotion and interoception and connection and mind body and slow things down and autonomic nervous system because it's just so deeply kind of integrated into it. Those that are kind of on the other end of the scale, there's still a need for them and they're really powerful trainers. If you're the glute god, you're still a powerful trainer and you're positively impacting someone's life. So if it's for you, there's a need for it. Interesting. Thank you, Emily. When you talk about the importance of sensory stimulation, how would that relate to optimizing things like balance, coordination, mobility, and strength when you're training a client? Yeah, so now we're going the other side. So from interoception, now we're going to talk about exteroception. Exteroception is your sensory input from the external environment versus the internal environment. When you look at balance and posture and gait and dynamic movement, the amount of sensory information that's coming in starts to shape your motor output. And I often say in my workshops and certifications that sensory trumps motor. All of the branches in the peripheral nervous system, 10 times as many are sensory versus those that are motor. Sensory has to come in first before motor out. So if you're trying to optimize someone's 
movement, balance, posture, gait, and they have a compromise in balance, posture, or gait, you can improve that balance or that coordination by upping the sensory information coming in. The way that I focus on it, just being podiatrist, is through the skin in the bottom of the feet and really the palm of the hand. So stimulating those input systems or those exteroceptive systems helps them and their nervous system create a better orientation to the external environment. So balancing barefoot, stimulating the feet, you see better balance. It makes sense, but there are some basic, I call them balance hacks. So if you're doing balance training and you're teaching someone balance exercises, if you stimulate the skin on the hands, particularly the fingertips, you'll actually improve someone's balance. So you, if you understand that, you can build that into the programming or you could teach them to use that as a way to hack their balance, especially if they need it. Okay. I mean, I can imagine clients going, what? I have to do what? And this is going to make me balance better? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it honestly is like put your fingertips together, right? Or like I'm closing my hands to each other, putting my hands on my thighs as I'm standing, essentially I'm stimulating, right? So I don't have to like touch my nose. (laughs) Like there's, you can Google like old wives tales of like, oh, if you grab your earlobe, it'll improve your balance. Well, it's not the earlobe. (laughs) It was that you're stimulating your fingers. But there's a grain of truth to that old wives tale then. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's how you're interpreting it. Yeah. And I, when I teach workshops, I have people do that, that I'll have them just balance without, and then put your hands together. So you're stimulating the fingertips And just internally, do you feel like something has shifted? Many, many trainers will say, I feel like it's closed, like it's closed looped, if that makes sense. If you're listening, try it. (laughs) And you can tell me if if you feel that difference as well. It's subtle, but it's stimulating the nervous system, which is translating to better balance. And it sounds like a good... I don't want to call it a trick, but a good trick <laughs> for a trainer to do with their client because it's something that could be, they could, you know, it's immediately noticeable. They get in their client to to do a balance exercise, and then they can go, okay, now we're gonna we're gonna recalibrate here, or we're gonna do this sensory exercise with your hands, and then we're gonna try that again. Yes, some of the other balance hacks is you can use your eyes. So if you're standing on one leg, or you're having your client, and they stare at something, almost like how a dancer spots. Right. So the more that you're looking around and you're kind of taking in all of this peripheral information, it becomes more difficult to balance you standing on one leg and your client is like zoned in on something one spot. Like, don't look, but like look (laughs) at something that will actually improve their balance. The hand I already had said that the third one is using what's called tension. So instead of right, my my hands are together right now. Instead of just having my fingers touching, I can push my fingers together. That just added tension. I could make a fist. That's tension. If my arms are out like I'm balancing, I can put energy through my arms like I want to touch the walls. So the third hack is tension. And then the fourth hack is using your breath. So just keeping the breath moving the entire time. Anytime I teach balance exercise, I actually teach a balance-based class. Those are the four hacks that I have people use. Good hacks. Okay, Emily, you mentioned earlier the Naboso proprioceptive training mat. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. So Naboso is, we have insoles and mats, so we'll just focus on the mats right now. Picture a 
yoga mat size, even though it's not a yoga mat, but a yoga mat size mat. And across the entire mat are these tiny little pyramids. The pyramid is 1.5 millimeters tall. And (laughs) just so you can get an idea of it. And each pyramid is one millimeter apart from from each other. So little tiny pyramids across the entire mat. It is stimulating the nerves in the bottom of the feet and the palm of the hand. One of those nerves is sensitive to what's called two-point discrimination. Best analogy is Braille. So picture like Braille, like on an ATM. So the Braille, the two points and the dots of Braille stimulates the same nerves that we're stimulating through the nervosa mat. Two-point discrimination is interpreted by your nervous system as texture. Is this smooth? Is this rough? It's a very specific texture, and it's a texture that your brain recognizes. So when you look at two-point discrimination, texture, insoles, mats, which is obviously what Naboso is, and you look at the research, you can see improvements in how quickly someone can sense a shift in their ankle joint. Right? So it's called joint position sense. You can notice an increase in force production. You notice faster stability. You notice decreased postural sway, better balance, better gait when someone is walking across something that has a texture. So the applications that we use for the Naboso mat and our insoles is neurorehabilitation, training, Olympic lifting, kettlebells, body weight, whatever you're doing right now, if you're standing on the ground, you could theoretically stand barefoot on the Naboso mat and get more feedback through your foundation, which means you're getting faster neurostimulation. Your connection to the external environment and your foundation is enhanced more power, more force, more stability, all of that translates to positive, positive, positive. So there's there's a lot of applications that we have with the mat, within fitness, but also with performance. Okay, so how has the feedback been from PT clients using the mat? And, and what, what specific exercises and movements are they actually, are they favoring? Yes, so those that are pro barefoot. They're already training barefoot. Those are the ones that are the easiest to appreciate it, right? Because they already know the benefit of taking your shoes off. So that's an easy sell, I guess. What they're noticing is better stability and more power. So some examples are people will do different Olympic lifts, whether it's a snatch, it's a clean, it's a jerk. And when they're doing those lifts, some of the trainers and the coaches of those of those clients are saying that they're hitting more weight. So their one rep max and things like that are going up because they feel more grounded, they feel more stable. We have people that are doing kettlebells with it, any like Viper or sandbag or steel mace. Think a tool that is built around freedom of movement and momentum, I guess, right? So you would Any of those modalities, I would say you should do barefoot anyway, because it's just more natural. We have people that do it for yoga. We have people that use it. Actually, we have a lot of Pilates professionals that integrate it. And they'll put it all across the reformer and the studio and any of their equipment. And whatever the foot or the hand is touching, they're integrating that from a Pilates perspective. So that's one of our most powerful categories. 
And then those that work with more neuro clients, any of the clients that have neuropathy or MS or had a stroke, they're noticing huge differences in the stuff that I'm seeing on Instagram and other social platforms where how their balance is before and then their balance is after. It's, it's quite profound what we're seeing. And then we do have some professional athletes that are using it in professional teams, both here and in the U.S., and they drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> so they believe in it, which is great. Okay, great. I mean, I've seen sort of sensory stimulation mats in workplaces, in offices, for people that use standing desks or even people sitting down, kicking their shoes off. Now, is there any, is, is that the same kind of idea? Yes, we actually have a standing mat for desks. <laughs> there you go. Perfect lead in. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't know that. <laughs> so if you, if we want to kind of talk about for a second with the standing desks, Absolutely. is standing is so unnatural to the body. Sitting is not natural to the body. What is natural is moving. <laughs> so if you're going to sit at your desk, obviously that is, you start to get low back pain, tight hip flexors, all the negatives that we know with it, your butt gets lazy, all that stuff. But standing and standing desks, I've actually seen a huge increase in the number of patients and individuals with foot pain, plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, because of standing desks and the effect of just standing static one place on your feet, probably on concrete, because that's what most office buildings are going to have. And maybe not in the best shoes or you're trying to go minimal. It's you, you need to somehow keep the nervous system and the fascial system and the postural muscles stimulated. So if you are going to be at a standing desk or even a seated desk, getting out of your shoes, great, right? But being on a noboso mat or any sort of textured mat or or something that's going to keep the feet even more stimulated is going to help offset some of that stress from the unnatural position of standing. I mean, someone who anyone who's on a standing desk, static, needs to be like fidgety as can be like you need to constantly be moving your feet do calf raises roll on a golf ball you know something that has a lot of standing desk mats now have like ridges and hills and kind of things on the mat which is really what it should have because you have to be like stretch that calf and step on this and then go over there and then it's it's really not natural to the body so it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, a big movement against sedentary uh, <laughs> workplace positions that are turning into into this increase in standing desks. But then, you know, any the problem just gets kind of shifted to a different part of the body. There's always a knock-on effect. Yeah, exactly. So the, I would, for any of the clients, and people might not ask their clients right now about their work environment. My office in New York is, one of my colleagues is a chiropractor, and she's huge in ergonomics. And she makes a great living <laughs> working with corporate and corporate ergonomic kind of positioning. And she will literally go into all the big New York City corporate offices and do ergonomic assessments. So part of what I've learned from her is either people take a picture of their work setting, like of them at their desk, what it's like. And you know, I'm sure a lot of the trainers listening, if you saw the way that they worked and sat or stood or positioned their body around their computer or the phone or whatever it is for eight plus hours a day. I mean, you learn a lot of the positional or postural stress of what people are doing for a majority of their day or really a majority of their life <laughs> in a sense. So that would be really interesting. And then the same thing is with sleep. I ask every single one of my patients, in what position do they sleep? 
you know, how do they sleep? How do they wake up? Are they side sleep? Or they do this? Do they sleep in a fetal position? Well, if you do that, if you sit at work and you sleep in a fetal position, I know your hip flexors are tight. I don't even have to test them. <laughs> like I already know just based off of postural patterns of what you're, what you're telling me. So it, it would actually give the trainer a lot of great input without ever having to touch them or fully assess them. You can know what their repetitive stress is from sleep, which is a majority of your day, or work, which is the other majority of the day. It's quite quite powerful to understand those two situations. So trainers need to be really kind of hyper aware of this because you know, a lot of trainers are working in a almost unique workplace where they're not sitting down at a desk all day, but almost everybody that they're training probably is. So when they're seeing them for that 45 minutes or that hour a week or two twice a week, that's completely different. That's a completely different environment to how those clients are existing. Yes. And the other thing that relates to that is that in that one hour, 45 minutes, one to two times a week, whatever it is, you're seeing that client move consciously, right? Because you're there hopefully saying engage here exhale here pull your shoulders back do this to your shoulder blade right <laughs> whatever it is that you're cueing consciously so they're they're aware of their body and their positioning because of you and your voice making them conscious of that we have to start realizing that as soon as that client is out their subconscious patterning is actually what is stressing their body the most i teach a lot on gait so walking how to do a gait assessment and the un, for a trainer to understand gait and how to do a gait assessment is so powerful because that's the most common movement that we do every day. It's some subconscious. We are taking ten thousand steps a day, or however many it is. If, Not, if we're good, if you're hopefully you guys are taking ten thousand steps a day, or your clients are, and each of those steps and the pattern of those steps is very subconscious or unconscious, right? So they're not, they're not even thinking about it. That's honestly where most of the injury risk with them lies. Not during, not during the squat <laughs> that you're having them do. So if you're doing just a squat assessment or push-up position or a lunge position, that's great, but that's not the stress that's actually injuring the client, right? It is them walking mindlessly, not controlling their ankle range of motion and compensating every time and sitting completely hunched over or static at a standing desk and then sleeping on their left side in a fetal position. I mean, honestly, that's what's putting most of the stress on our clients. Understanding that picture helps the client make a stronger impact for when that client leaves them. So Emily, I mean, I, I know you, you, you said before that you, you're coming at all of this from a podiatrist perspective. It is like it, your feet are always in contact with something. So, I mean, it makes sense, you know, when, if you're talking about sensory stimulation, then they, that's the one part of your body really that is always in, in contact with something else. And then the hands next of all, I guess. And then, you know, our butts, I guess, after that, because <laughs> we're sitting down too much. So, I mean, you described the foot as a gateway between the ground and the nervous system. What kind of got you excited about the foot as it were in the first place? What, what kind of, what was it that made you kind of have this light bulb moment and, and realize that this is like the gateway? Yeah. So I'm actually more fascinated with movement than feet. And that's honestly why I went to podiatry school. 
is, you know, I was an athlete for years. Of course, I have an appreciation for movement. And then I got into fitness. So I had an appreciation for movement. Then when I was seeking out advanced degrees, medical degrees, podiatry, kind of fell into it. (laughs) But the part of how I made or wanted to make podiatry fit what makes me the happiest or what fascinates me is I had to tie it back to movement, like larger movement. Movement meaning like dance, like just the beauty of dance and the beauty of movement and running. And if you're thinking of like a sprint and you're like, how the hell is Usain Bolt so fast? Like what is, what is happening between this relationship between the ground and the foot? So that's where I started to tie the foot and back to movement. Then it makes the foot less gross (laughs) because Feet are just like not that attractive. And I've seen just some of the nastiest feet. (laughs) But aside from that, what the characteristics of feet that are fascinating to me, not not to everybody, but to me is the sensory side to it. You know, the biomechanics, the pronation, the supination, all the bones and all the tiny little muscles and, and all of that is fascinatingly complex and powerful. But to me, I just, I love the nervous system and the complexity of the nervous system is just what attracts me to the foot. And it's part that hadn't been explored as much as the biomechanics. So what I learned in podiatry school was very heavy biomechanical, orthotics, shoes, right? Squat, dorsiflex, all of those is very biomechanical based. And then between podiatry school and my residency, which is where I learned to do surgery in the U.S., we, we have to learn to do surgery. In between those, I went back to school and I got my master's in human movement. That's where I studied barefoot science. And that's where my curiosity and passion for the nervous system started to be developed. So then connecting both of those, it just shaped into how I uniquely look at movement and look at feet and look at my patients is the blending of my podiatry background with the human movement degree. And then coincidentally, at the same time of all this happening, the Born to Run book came out, minimal shoes, barefoot running, all that boom happened. So it was just kind of perfect timing that that's when I developed my certification. I started doing education. And then I just kept diving down the rabbit hole of the nervous system, which eventually led to emotion and interoception and fascia and, you know, yes, to hold true to my core, which is that I am a podiatrist. The part that is is common in, in everything when you think of the shaping of the nervous system and us as bipedal beings walking on two feet, not down on the ground like a primate, is that the only contact point between the body and the ground is the skin in the bottom of the feet. So that does something really powerful to the brain, to the nervous system, to the fascial system, to the coordination, to evolution, to, I mean, just so much. So that's why I keep going back to that. Okay, interesting. I mean, you're talking there about the senses on the bottom of the foot and the whole barefoot movement. I can't help noticing you're wearing your vibrams, your five fingers. So obviously there for, I mean, the the skin isn't exposed to the ground, but there's still benefit in the, in the nature of the, the barefoot style of shoe. Yes. So looking at shoes, any of the minimal shoes, I happen to be very partial to the five fingers because I just like digit dexterity. I don't know if that was because I was a gymnast or just always barefoot. It's Everyone has their own brand of minimal shoes that they like. I like them all. It's just, you know, kind of partial to toe toe dexterity. 
any of the minimal shoes, when you start to take away the cushion in shoes, you are increasing the sensory input that's coming in. Cushion starts to damp or dissipate or absorb a lot of the sensory Im input that is supposed to be coming in and is supposed to be stimulating the skin on the bottom of the feet, but it doesn't quite get there because the cushion took it all or absorbed it all. That starts to create a delay or a disconnect between your feet and the ground and the sensory information that's coming in. The other benefit to minimal shoes that is great, not fully sensory, but you could indirectly make it sensory, is to not have anything rigid within the shoe. So if you could fold the shoe in half, if you put fold it in half towards the top side, if that makes sense, but you also want to be able to fold it the other way, so the sole towards the sole, you want to be able to do that as well, and then you want to be able to wring a shoe out. That's called torsion. So if your shoe has torsion, then that freedom of movement in all of those different directions that I had said is allowing you the most freedom of movement within your feet. A lot of minimal shoes, unfortunately, don't have as much torsion as we should have. And that, again, can be easily assessed by trying to wring your shoe out. The easier it is to kind of twist it or spiral it, the more freedom your foot has to move in its in its potential or its natural potential. And then the heel-toe drop is the other big one that people start to look at. The less drop you have, the more natural your foot position is put in. And that's ideally what we're trying to do. Some of that addresses mechanical stuff, but a lot of it does tie into sensory because the more the foot can splay, technically you trigger the fascial web in the foot. Fascia is sensory. Fascia has 100 million sensory nerves. So whenever I think of sensory and fascia, it's just an extension of the brain. So the more that you can allow the foot to spread and splay in its natural positioning, you are upping the sensory information, right? It's not through the skin, it's more through the fascial web. Very powerful as well. So is this, do you think it's suitable for most people or for everybody? From a training perspective, yes. Not meaning you're doing box jumps and crazy ballistic stuff, but to be barefoot, and to get barefoot stimulation in a controlled environment is beneficial, yes, to everyone, regardless of foot type, regardless if you have neuropathy or not. If I'm in a controlled state and I have decreased sensitivity to my feet, I want to stimulate my nervous system because of neuroplasticity and how the nervous system responds to stimulus, yes? So everyone should have some sort of barefoot stimulation on a daily basis. I tell people you should get at least 30 minutes of barefoot stimulation every single day. And then you should do a couple times a week of focused foot strengthening or foot to core strengthening, whether that's yoga, it's Pilates, it's a barefoot class, it's you with your trainer strengthening your feet and you're grounding and connecting your toes. But to have stimulation statically when you brush your teeth, standing in a bosa mat <laughs> and roll your feet on a golf ball or something that that is what everyone should have yeah unfortunately a lot of people go from wake up go into like a slipper so they're not and then they go from slipper to their shoes and then they're in their shoes all day and then they change their shoes to go into their sneakers regular sneakers with their trainer and they go back into their regular shoes and then they go home and they put their home slippers back on and then they go to bed i mean that's it that's crazy to not have to those who are listening who are very pro-barefoot, I mean, I'm barefoot, I don't know, maybe 20 hours the day, as, like as little as I can be in shoes, I will be in shoes because it's 
it's such an unnecessary disconnect. Or if it's part of your reality, how can you fit in foot stimulation and foot release on a daily basis? At least give me 30 minutes, hopefully. <laughs> so apart from taking our shoes off, it sounds like there, there are a few little, few little tips that we can that the trainers can implement, you know, pretty easily with their with their clients, or or that they can encourage clients to adopt at home. Whether it's um, standing on the sensory mat, whether it's you know rolling a golf ball, whether it's you know centering yourself with the the finger exercise. Yes. So rolling the feet, golf ball, lacrosse ball, any any product. I'm not partial to any of them, and I haven't developed one, so I, <laughs> I don't care what you use. But rolling your feet. I would say in the beginning of the day and the end of the day. So five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening. Technically, I would do five minutes before you work out or the session. So you would implement that. Standing barefoot in the morning when you're getting ready, like you had said, which is perfect, whether you're on a Nimbosa mat or not. And then do you do the movement prep? Could you do the movement prep of the sessions with your client barefoot and then put their shoes on? That's a really good way to do it as well. Even for the commercial gyms, if I was training at a commercial gym that technically does not have a pol- or has a policy that you cannot be barefoot, I would go into the yoga studio. Every mind-body studio and every commercial gym, people are barefoot. So you could do your controlled environment movement prep in there, then put the shoes on and go into the gym floor using correct toes or a product like that. So the toe spacers is actually really good. And then looking at the client's footwear and seeing if you could modify it to get a little bit more freedom of movement, take away a little bit of the cushion when they're in the gym, right? And then if they do have a standing desk, how can you bring in foot recovery or foot activation throughout that environment? The more you bring foot cueing to the sessions or just a foot mind check, I mean, you could be as like neurotic to have like a alarm on your phone and every hour you do like posture checks or people will do the chiropractor that I mentioned. She's big on every hour you're technically supposed to look away from a computer, right? And just kind of focus your eyes on a distance versus being so close up. Those get built into apps, right? So you just a little alarm goes off and you just kind of do your foot activation or do a foot release or shift your posture, you know, building it in to really, I would say like a lifestyle. Great advice. Thank you, Emily. And anyone who's listening, then, you know, kick your shoes off and start adopting a couple of these techniques and see where it takes you. Emily, if people want to find out anything more about you and your work, where can they go? So I'm on any or all of the social platforms. DR Emily DPM is the Instagram handle. EBFA Global is my education company. That's the URL that's on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We have a bunch of free education on YouTube. So checking out EBFA Global, my name is my practice website. So DrEmilySpickle.com. I have a lot of information on functional medicine, regenerative medicine, functional podiatry, human movement. So I kind of build that into my practice. And you can email me off of any of those sites and it will come to my phone. Emily, thank you again for talking to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Thank you so much. I hope everyone enjoyed. For a huge range of online courses for fitness professionals, including the in-depth corrective exercise trainer course, fully accredited for CECs and other continuing education points, go to the network website, select the courses tab and click on corrective exercise. 
The corrective exercise trainer specialization includes comprehensive modules on structural assessment, muscles and movement, fundamentals of corrective exercise, and corrective exercise program design. Network members save up to 30%, so head to fitnessnetwork.com.au today to grow your skill set and fitness career. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Filex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar at filex.com.au.